Hey folks, welcome to the Dark Horse Podcast. I have the distinct pleasure of being here with Matt Taibbi, who is a reporter for Rolling Stone and Substack. Many of you will know him. For those who don't, you should definitely look into his writings. He has been utterly fantastic and consistent for decades on some of the most difficult topics that there are to report on. I would say he is a singular voice in journalism today. Welcome, Matt. Thank you so much for having me on, Brett. It's, a, it's an honor. Um, well, uh, I'm not quite sure where to start, I have to tell you. 2020 is proving to be a remarkable year, and I think uh, you and I are both seeing a disturbing and complex picture emerging, and I suppose the thing to do is just to figure out whether we can make any useful sense of it. Yeah, I mean, I, I think um, the, the first place for me that, that, that's interesting is, is uh, I think a lot of us in journalism um, are coming around slowly to the fact that we, we missed some big stories that took place uh, on campuses a few years ago. Um, you know, yours, the, obviously the one in Yale, uh, but really, you know, I, we, we've heard from academics over the years about certain things that were going on. And we, I, I think the, the reflexive um, reaction among most people in the press, and most of us are kind of liberal leaning in our political orientation, um, was to say, okay, well, that's a right-wing talking point, and you know, we're going to have trouble selling that story anyway if we try to do it, and so let's not even bother. And uh, so there was a combination of not taking it seriously, and then there's a little bit of like cancel culture already working in into the thought process with journalists because we just knew that we couldn't get that past editors, right? Um, but now, <laughs> you know, this is this has come into our business in a huge way, uh, in particular in the last couple of months, as you know. So, um, you know, people like me, I think owe people like you an apology for coming around to this late, <laughs> if anything. Yeah. Well, I have a, uh, a rule of thumb when it comes to such things, which is I welcome anybody without the need for an apology who recognizes that they got it wrong and says so. My feeling is there's a point at which you didn't get it. And this is true for all of us. And then there's a point at which you do. And, you know, you didn't see it as close up as we did on campuses. But anyway, thank you for acknowledging that there was something to see and that it, it wasn't seen by you and others early enough. I have to say, from my perspective, you know, it, uh, it emerged and became very apparent. And there was this experience of trying to alert people to what was coming. And there were so many ways of dismissing it as it's a free speech issue, it's a college campus issue, you're making a mountain out of a molehill, you're a grifter, all the things that get thrown at you. And now we're in a situation where I don't know what kind of blindness you would need not to see that the thing that happened at Evergreen and elsewhere is suddenly uh, in every institution that we've got and spilled out into the streets. But it is the least satisfying, I told you so, imaginable. <laughs> I mean, I'm just watching civilization burn because we couldn't make this point, you know, a few years ago. And wow, what are we going to do now that it's at this scale? It's really interesting. I, I think there is going to be some blowback um, in the media world because 
obviously I think what happened, and I'm only just starting to do the research on what happened in academia, because I think that's now the important background for all of us who are trying to figure out what's going on in institutional America. Uh, but the, you know, the, the things that are happening in the journalism world are kind of similar to what happened in academia. There's this schism between people who kind of believe in the traditional fact-finding mission of the news that, um, that can't be uh, linked to any kind of ideological uh, imperative. And then there's a new school that's coming up and, and it's being expressed by people like Wesley Lowry uh, who are talking about something called moral clarity um, which you know, is very, I think a lot of young journalists really believe in, and they, they believe in it for different reasons. And I think some of them are just very socially committed um, and they really believe they want their work to be impactful. But there's a, there's a lack of understanding about what the purpose of the old model was and why it was good for audiences and for the institutions themselves. Um, and I think only now, uh, is it starting to dawn on some of the people who are kind of in the middle, like what those changes are meaning? Uh, and um, so I, I do, I have a little bit of hope because, and I didn't a month ago, uh, but, but I'm starting to see people within a lot of these institutions, um, you know, say things that I hadn't heard before. And, and, and you're seeing voices like uh, Matt Iglesias at, at Vox, who was kind of on the other side of this issue, um, you know, come around, and I—I I, I don't know. I, I'm hoping there's sort of a reckoning within the media world, although you know, who knows how, how successful that will be. But uh, well, I mean, what does it look like if, uh, to, to you from the outside? Uh, well, um, I'm I'm fascinated to hear that you have hope. Uh, I'm thinking that you know, with a, an hour's investment here, we should be able to kill that off without trouble. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, I I, uh, I I mean, to be honest with you, Matt. Uh, I've been an admirer of yours for a long time uh, since the financial crisis and your courageous reporting about that. And I do think, I mean, you're going to see what I'm seeing soon. And at that point, this is a, you know, it's a break glass in case of emergency moment for the Republic. I, I just see almost no decent way out of this if we don't thread a very particular needle. But right. I do see what you're seeing. I mean, you know, Matty Iglesias is a classic example. He did come around. To his credit, he acknowledged that he had gotten it wrong. But uh, I'm reminded a little bit of, remember the uh, Boxing Day tsunami uh, in Asia? Oh, uh-huh. Yeah. There were all these videos. So the thing is, tsunamis were not regular enough um, in the Indian Ocean for people to have a sense about what they were and you know most of these people had not been living on the coast for generations so when the water receded people walked out <laughs> they looked at the fish flopping around on the the sea floor that had suddenly been exposed and it was all very curious until the water suddenly came back and there are just all these videos of these people just getting completely uh engulfed in a tsunami from which they never emerged and right. I have the sense that the hope that you are seeing with people waking up in journalism, I've already seen this movie. I know <laughs> about the little glimmers of hope and I know what washes over them. And right. uh, 
we're there. So right. there's now going to be a phase in which, and I think we saw this in the Harper's letter, there's going to be a phase in which people who thought that they were safe or that this wasn't a big deal are suddenly going to recognize that they have no mechanism whatsoever to protect themselves from from the movement, that the quality of the arguments the movement is making are not high, but the quality of the strategy is it's spectacular. And yeah, so no, it's 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 got this viral power to it. Um, and you know, one of the only reasons that I I feel like I was a little bit more wise to it maybe than some of the other people in the business is because I spent 10 years of my life in Russia. I went to school in the Soviet Union. Um, I remember a lot of these thought patterns. You know, I don't have a terribly distinguished academic career, but one of the few things I do know about is Russian history. And, um, you know, the ideas can be dangerous. You know, they, they, they can be more dangerous than really anything. And I, I think the, you know, there, there's an imperative that we have in, in reporting and, and it's very reinforced by Twitter, which is when uh, you veer off into a topic that the majority of your colleagues decide is not important or not as important as something else in the Trump era, this, this comes up a lot. Like, why are you looking at this when we have to deal with Trump? Um, you know, there's so many more, there's kids in cages. You shouldn't be paying attention to X, Y, and Z. Um, and as a result, things that actually are really important often get short shrift. Uh, and I, I do think, I think you're right. This, this whole thing is, is really about, uh, it, it's about intellectual freedom. It's about the values of uh, the enlightenment. It's sort of about the, the sort of core ideas of the American experiment are now under fire and, um, you know, there's, there's a, a lack of a willingness to look at what that means or what that might mean going forward, I, I think, because people just don't recognize how serious it is. And, and it, it's, again, it's similar to what happened in Russian history. People thought that this little clan of, you know, super motivated Bolsheviks were never going to go anywhere because even within the relatively... A uh, small minority of socialists who were very active. They they were considered, you know, nuts. But they they had a a way of thinking that was very difficult to counter in an institutional setting. And this is kind of a similar thing, I think. And people are seeing this that you know once once it gets into an in, into an institution, it's just really difficult to oppose. Like you know the. It, People don't want to be the person to, to stand up and say, I'm against anti-racism measures or I'm against, you know, the expansion of the equity, the diversity, equity and inclusion committee um, because it just sounds bad and they don't want to risk the, the, the you know, possibility of public, public canceling as well. Well, a couple of things. Uh, one, I heard a little bit of hope bubble up there for you. You said it's very difficult to counter. I think if there's one thing we know, it's that it's impossible to counter. And the, way, <laughs> the way we know that is that no institution resists. Right. The best examples in terms of, let's say, a college that, that resists is the University of Chicago. And it's not a shining example. It's barely ahead of its, its competitors. So when you have something that washes over every institution, you know that there, there isn't at that level a solution. And I'm not arguing there's no solution possible. In fact, I want to talk to you about a possible solution 
uh, later on in the podcast. But obviously, mm-hmm. um, but there's a there's a clear pattern here. You don't think that this is serious until it comes for you, at which point it's too late. Right. right. It's like that formulation. And uh, you, you said a bunch of things I, I want to bring into the mix here. Um, one is you say you're familiar with some of this from Russian history. In part, the parallel to Russian history is a little misleading because it's really Chinese history that uh-huh. is the, the relevant example. The mechanism, right. the social mechanism of action is much closer to the Chinese version of this. And, um, you know, a lot of the parallels are just incredibly close. And then there's a, obviously parallels to the, the French Revolution as well, uh, the reign of terror. But, um, but you know, it's not going to be any of these things exactly. It's right. going to be a new version. The real question for people like you and me, I think, is does this process that we are watching unfold in 2020 land on that list of uh, remarkable tragedies brought on by movements? Does this land on the list with the Bolshevik Revolution, with the Nazis, with the Cambodian Revolution, uh, with the Rwandan genocide? Do we end up in one of those, or is there some conceivable way out of this? Uh, yeah, I, I have no idea. I mean, it, and it, you know, obviously those movements were more violent to begin with. They, they were, they were taking place in, um, more open, uh, more openly, uh, um, destabilized political environments. Although this, this one's pretty bad as well. Uh, but so far, the penetration of this has almost entirely been intellectual, right, and bureaucratic. Um, and the, when we talk about cancel culture, what we're usually talking about is people losing their jobs, and then the accompanying problem of people being afraid to speak out. Um, you know, it's not yet at the level of people going, you know, being dragged off to basements and put up against the wall as they did, you know, in the, in the, in the early days of the Soviet Union or, you know, thrown into ditches or whatever it is. Um, so, you know, it's, it's not that yet, but, you know, just in the last month, we've seen so many headlines suggesting that institutional America is already almost completely consumed by these ideas. And we saw yesterday, I saw you tweeting about this, but the, the federal government, you know, uh, you know, is that is adopting ideas that are, you know, frankly, crazy, right? Uh, and it's, uh, it's very troubling. You know, the, the July 4th letter to open letter in Princeton, which I'm something I'm looking into now, like if that could happen at Princeton, mm-hmm. uh, and it hasn't happened yet, right? Like, it, like the, the things that they're asking for in that letter have not yet been approved. But, um, you know, if, that, if the person who is speaking out against that can be denounced by the president, in a place like Princeton, which actually was one of the few universities to adopt the University of Chicago principles that you talked about, um, then that's a significant blow, right? I mean, the, 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 it, it speaks a lot to the, the problem that's, uh, you know, that's going on across the country. And, you know, as, as a reporter, I'm finding out all kinds of stuff that I never knew. Like, if you're an academic now and you're applying for a job, you know, in probably half the cases, you have to submit a statement to HR with your 
uh, sort of diversity ideas. And that's a prerequisite before your application even gets to the department that might even be interested in you for whatever the subject matter is. So this idea of having like this, these political commissars uh, in the middle of, um, of, you know, sort of every level of intellectual work in this country, I, I, I think it's just people don't recognize the extent to which it's already happened. Um, and, yeah, you know, from the journalistic perspective, I, we have a long way to go to, to get people to understand that. Yeah. Um, one thing I want to just adjust about what I heard you say earlier, you said that it was um, about free expression and enlightenment ideas. And in one way, I think it is about that from the perspective of those of us defending those things, because mm -hmm. we know right. how important they are. From the right. point of view of the movement, I don't think it's about those things. It's almost purely about power over material things and the ability to speak openly about what's wrong with this plan, the ability to invoke something like science in order to demonstrate that a claim might be false, the ability to appeal to normal rules of due process in order to establish uh, a claim. All of these things have to be disrupted in order for a movement based on fictions to, uh, in order for it to take over. So I, I think uh, the, um, the, I believe he was an ex NSA officer, William Binney described yeah, many of the, uh, the uh, structures that were put in place after nine 11 uh, as a turnkey totalitarian state. You know, the idea being that the structures were in place, but the key hadn't been turned. So it didn't feel totalitarian, but it could at any moment. And this movement actually has that element to it, where it is disrupting the things that would allow you to get in the way of its power grab, but the key hasn't been fully turned yet. It's, you know, why do you want to get rid of the police? Right? right. Well, there's an excuse for why you want to get rid of the police, but then there's also what you're going to do after the police are gone, because the police are really the mechanism through which all of the other mechanisms uh, keep people from um, just taking what they can. Mm-hmm. So uh, I, I guess um, as bad as things are for the things that are very important, I don't think, I think eliminating those things is a means to an end. And I, I worry about, about not only the disruption of the essential foundational stuff, but the end that is ultimately being pursued, which I don't think most of the people participating even know about. Yeah, I think you're, I think you're right about that. A lot, of, a lot of people who are marching, who are protesting and think they're, talking about one thing and maybe there's a minority of people who actually know what it's about. Uh, but the important, the important thing is what's going on institutionally and, you know, both in terms of the sort of explosion of new administrative staff that has taken place on campuses, but increasingly also is taking place in, in companies like media companies, um, sort of new decision makers who are inserting their imperatives into the work, right? So even in, even in media, we're having situations where like the, the Intercept, right, which is one of the most liberal uh, me media companies there is, um, you know, there's a, there was a strong push to put in the charter of the organization that its journalistic mission was to advance anti-racist causes. Now, they haven't quite gone there yet. Uh, it, they, they sort of took a little bit of a left turn before they, they went all the way there. 
But that's something that's being pressed in a lot of media companies right now is this idea of writing it into the mission. And, um, and that's more important, I think, than how many people are on the streets. It's like, is, is the institution now fully captured? Is, the, is it already demonstrated that the leaders of these institutions will respond to letters and calls for firings by indulging them, right? Uh, and I think, you, as you pointed out, in pretty much every case, that's already been proven to be the, you know, true, right? So until, until somebody starts standing up and, and, you know, resisting some of these things um, and showing a way to do it, it's just going to spread to everything, you know, the big, big tech corporations, big media companies, you know, academia already. Um, so, yeah, it's hard, it's hard to know what to do. Yeah. So I don't, I mean, I do think some of us have demonstrated how you resist and it's not a pretty picture. You know, my wife and I were both driven out of tenured positions that we thought were secure and we discovered they weren't. Um, that said, we're surviving and we're not the only ones, but there's a limited number of spots for people to famously get ejected from an institution <laughs> and make it in the outside world. It's just not, it's not a, a, a program that can support all of the people who need to stand up. So that's really frightening. I think right. it gives people a false sense of hope because they see an example that works out and they think, okay, maybe that's the way. And it, it, it just can't be. But, um, but that said, the real problem is not that nobody stands up or that there's no way to do it. There is. And, you know, it's a learning process, right? Every time I uh, look at a tweet and I look at the button that sends it, I think, is this the one? <laughs> right? Is is this the? Am I about to end my ability to earn a living by hitting that button? Um, and so far, it hasn't worked out that way, but it could at any time. So the problem, though, is that no institution can resist. And so, yes, the intercept had a the intercept had a frightening encounter with this thing. It did not. Oh, go, it's ongoing. Yeah, it's ongoing. I mean, I should say for my audience, you wrote an excellent piece about this being widespread in uh, journalistic institutions, and it is absolutely uh, worth a read. I would recommend everybody sign up for your site and look at what you're writing because it really is like the front lines, and it's so well described. But um, the point is, okay, the Intercept showed some sign of being able to resist. The way the game works, all of the institutions that show no sign of being able to resist topple, then the ones that do show some sign and some inclination to resist have called attention to themselves as needing particular pressure and higher quality tools brought to bear, and ultimately they all fall. So mm. what are we going to do when all of the voices that make sense exist outside of the institutional structure because if they had stayed, they would have been compelled to go through this, uh, this struggle session kind of nonsense, um, you know, what happens when the institutions are all captured and everybody who knows what's going on is no longer part of them? Well, it, it depends on what field you're talking about, because in journalism, it might end up being a positive process, because I think what we're seeing now, look, look there was already a huge collapse in trust in traditional media. In fact, I would argue that was one of the major factors that got Donald Trump elected in 2016. Um, you, you know, 
journalists rarely talk about this. Papers like the New York Times rarely talk about it. But Trump really built his campaign around campaigning against us, the people who are covering him. I remember I was one of the people in the, you know, following him around. And he, he sort of organizes speeches around the press as a representative of a corrupt elite that, that, that doesn't speak to the ordinary person. And that process has been uh, growing on both the left and the right for a couple of decades now. It's been sort of a curiosity for me to watch. Uh, you know, on the right, you started to see it, I, I would say, in the early 2000s. And then especially after the Occupy movement, um, and, and particularly with the Bernie Sanders campaign, there's been a huge amount of disaffection on the left, too. So the the authority of institutions like the New York Times, uh, the Washington Post, CBS, NBC, MSNBC, CNN, they are, they've already crumbled just, just as, as consumer operations. They were already in a bit, I would say, in, in a, basically in a state of failure uh, before even this problem started to rear its head in a big way. And what we already started seeing um, prior to this year was that independent media voices, including people that you know very well, like Joe Rogan, um, were becoming hugely successful just by not being that, you know, uh, because the audience now, and I'm seeing this with my own site, a lot of other independent journalists are seeing the same thing. People are so, um, so disenchanted with the uh, didactic, uh, politicized tone of media, of institutional media, that they're, they're looking for anything that isn't that. And so I, I am, I'm sort of hopeful that new institutions will grow out of that. And that, that has been a little bit the history of, of this business. You know, it's not, it's not like academia where you can't, you can't just wipe out Princeton and, and all the Ivies in, in, a, in another day, build a whole bunch of new media companies. Um, so there's a possibility that we're going to build something better, uh, but it will just take a lot of energy. And then what's going to happen with those institutions once they get big enough is the problem, you know? So I, I, right now we have this model where there's no alternative big institutions really, uh, but there's a lot of voices who are sort of growing in, in import, um, but they're all just sort of individual people. I don't know if that's sustainable as a, as a replacement for what we had in the press, but um you know, I don't know if that answers your question, but it's it's a thought. It it does, but I I cannot resist pointing out where I think this <laughs> goes because again, I mean, you even use the word hope, which at this moment that's uh, um, that's audacious. Let's just say. Right. Um, here's the problem: is mm -hmm. that those of us on the outside, there are two phenomena that I think we need to pay attention to. One is that even the Joe Rogans of the world are dependent on the institutions of the world, mm -hmm. right? Joe Rogan brings his message and his guests to the world via things like YouTube. YouTube, right. which has no accountability, definitely has this movement inside of it, on the market oh, yeah. all the time, has incredible power to wield tools that we don't even understand as outsiders to it. And there's almost nowhere to go, right? You can abandon ship and you could go to some platform that um, is not subject to these kinds of pressures, but then what happens? Well, okay, then you're 
grouped with all of the truly noxious stuff that also is not welcome on YouTube. And so you get uh, tainted as alt-right or worse. Um, so kind of damned if you do and damned if you don't. And the other factor that I want to point out, not only are there these institutions which have this revolution on the march within every single one of them, but there is the very real sense that there is a censorious instinct marching in our direction and it's knocking off people and some of the people that it started with were truly terrible right and then it's come to people who are much more uh in a gray area and you know it's beginning we can see it even experimenting with people that there's nothing wrong with at all right all they are is abrasive so you know james Lindsay found himself uh frozen out of his twitter account the other day, right? And it's like, okay, it was Sargon of Akkad two years ago, and now we're at James Lindsay. How much longer is it before it gets to me, frankly? I mean, I think right. they, w they would have done it if they could have, and the problem is at the moment, it's still, it would be very awkward. Uh, you know, James Lindsay is still on Twitter, so apparently mm -hmm. that's, um, that's still not within the power of the movement, but of course it would love to get rid of James Lindsay because he's a huge embarrassment to them because he just simply says, flat out how their strategy works right so um between the institutions that have the ability given that there's no real public square the quasi public square that we have is owned by institutions in which the uh the revolution is on the march or the uh the counter-revolution as it were um and we see this thing experimenting with how to come for those voices that you're describing who are independent and might constitute some kind of a, you know, a renaissance in journalism or an equivalent space by being independent and not subject to an institution. Yeah, you're right. You know, and I, I now I'm checking myself for the optimism because, you know, actually when you talked about the people that came for the noxious folks first, I mean, I think we're talking about probably Alex Jones was, was, was one of the first big ones. Um, when that happened, I was one of the few people in media who popped up and said, hey, you know, this is not necessarily a good thing. I think you, you have to look at what this means for the rest of the business. Uh, today, it's going to be Alex Jones. And if this mechanism proves successful, just by its nature, it's going to start looking for the next thing. It's going to decide Ben Shapiro is next, and then it's going to start looking around. And then there's going to be a um, a process where groups are going to start demanding that we take the extreme version on the other side off to compensate for this person. And it's going to narrow the field progressively that started to happen. And then additionally, right after, if you remember what the Alex Jones thing, um, some of the platforms started to, uh, this is at the height of the Russia mania. They started to zap pages that they were calling uh, coordinated inauthentic content. Um, and some of them were just regular old, you know, sort of alternative media sites who happened to you know, be deemed inauthentic by Facebook and some other of these big platforms. And I, I tried to get people in the business interested in this problem, which was that uh, the press traditionally uh, got its independence from having its own distribution, at least print uh, journalism did right so the newspaper in a locality built its power up over decades uh, by uh, having its own trucks uh, by having its own distribution routes 
um, its own sales points, its own paper kids even. They were the only people in town, uh, in the area, who were able to reach all those millions of people. And so that's how they had their power. You couldn't take it from them. Uh, but in the internet age, uh, that vanishes overnight. Distribution is now wholly in the hands of a couple of companies, basically. Uh, the overwhelming majority of people in this country get their news from Google or Facebook or Twitter. Uh, and so what happens if these companies start making censorious decisions, which is, which is what they were doing? Uh, and I, I was amazed really at the lack of interest in this topic among people in, in the press. I mean, I, I grew up, uh, you know, I, my father was a reporter. I grew up around people. Uh, my first internship was at the Village Voice. So I, I remember be, people like Nat Hentoff and Wayne Barrett, it, like the, the, the standard position of a journalist in the 70s, 80s and 90s was to be hypersensitive to any possibility of censorship or control over us as an institution. And that spirit has completely vanished from, from the press. Like people, people don't even, in fact, they're, act, they're, they're actively asking to be controlled more uh, if you even see any op-eds about this subject at all. And so we're in a situation now where you know, people are being removed or deranked or shadow banned or whatever it is constantly there's no transparency about it it's it's effectively a um you know a media regulator uh that that you know that is unelected and doesn't answer to the public at all and uh yeah, it's a very serious problem because you're right you know for all of joe rogan's success at any minute you know somebody could say yeah enough of that <laughs> you know uh and you know he'd be, he'd be reduced to i don't know what you know sending cds through the mail to people you know i mean it, it could it, that could happen right and uh we are we haven't seen very much of some other layers that actually will come into play here so first let me just say one of the things that is most disturbing and that i don't hear talked about enough is that not only is there this desire to uh, eliminate certain perspectives so that they just simply can't be voiced where anybody can hear them. But it's also rather arbitrary, right? I, I can tweet that men are not women. I won't get tossed off Twitter. I think the only reason I won't get tossed off Twitter is that I can pull the biologist card and uh, certain people would, you know, would riot in the aftermath of me being tossed off for that. But Megan Murphy's gone for saying that. And so I guess the question is, what exactly is this rule that some people can say it and some people can't? Like, what universe do you think that's going to result in? Um, so there's the arbitrariness, which results in, uh, the, you know, the inevitable outcome here, which is just there's going to be favoritism. There's going to be this is going to be pure myth making. We're going to decide certain perspectives are OK. Certain people can voice other things. This is going to create advantages. It's just it, it's every value that we hold dear evaporated all at once but as far as the layers go yes there's twitter and youtube and facebook and instagram and reddit and all of these properties but then there's also the layers below them right there's there's mastercard and we have seen this in the past there are certain instances actually before the current cancel culture uh era 
in which we have seen the MasterCard uh, uh, piece pulled out. So uh, I remember early in WikiLeaks, before they had been successfully uh, portrayed as a Republican slash Russian asset in that amazing bowl. story, by the way. But anyway, yeah. Well, I want you to say more about that, but let me just uh, finish it out here. In the early days of WikiLeaks, there was a point at which WikiLeaks, to many of us, looked like um, a very positive force that was doing something very important. It was bringing transparency to these really um, despicable uh, processes, and it became impossible to donate to them, right? Mm -hmm. I, I did donate to them at one point, and then there was some point at which it became too complicated to do. And so how much of a win was that against WikiLeaks that suddenly the fact that MasterCard couldn't be, or whatever it was, really it was all the credit card uh, things. And then there was another one, you know, totally unrelated. Uh, Daniel, maybe his name is Daniel Siebert, guy who, uh, um, chemist who actually isolated the uh, hallucinogenic molecule in salvia. Um, salvia, which is a legal hallucinogen, which he was um, distributing, suddenly it became impossible to buy from his site with any sort of normal currency. So my point is, there's a there's a failsafe underneath the um, the platform layer, which can be pulled out from under everything, and then below that, there's another one. And I have a feeling in the end, we're going to discover that net neutrality was about something we didn't really understand. That mm -hmm. in the end, the ability of ISPs to take certain people out of circulation will be invoked if nothing else works to silence them. Hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I, I hadn't thought of that. Uh, all very possible. Uh, yeah. And, uh, you know, we, we haven't gotten there yet. It probably hasn't been necessary. But I think the embarrassing thing is it hasn't been necessary because we just haven't seen a, anything like a wide-scale rebellion on the part of the people you would expect it to come from. I mean, you know, the, the people in Maoist China or Soviet Russia who worked in the press, they had an excuse for not raising a ruckus about certain things. The thing that's always bothered me about journalists in the United States is you don't even really need to offer them anything to make them conform. Uh, there's no, uh, particularly even any special benefits that you get um, from doing so. And it's just a very a timid, uh, uninquisitive group of people. And, uh, and they're uniquely ill-suited, I think, to the mission of trying, of trying to oppose this thing. But you're absolutely right. I, mean, I hadn't thought about those other, other layers, but yeah, th those will probably come into play as well. They, they will if, if they need to, you know, it'll stop short of them if it can do it with the other layer. But the problem is, you know, you say exactly the right thing. It hasn't been necessary yet, but the same principle applies. As soon as it's necessary, it will be too late, right? right. You have yeah. to see it coming. And what you describe in journalism, uh, I call the epidemic of cowardice, but it's also a kind of learned helplessness. And that's exactly what I saw in academia. And I think the problem is it's civilization wide that our developmental environment has cultivated these weaknesses and now they are being exploited. Well, I think not for nothing, a lot of people are saying this is the evergreen of the United States right now. Your, your story is kind of the great metaphor for all of this stuff. Um, and you know, the, I remember you 
if I remember correctly, there was that vote, initial vote, where you objected to that one provision where they were, I guess they were asking you to put down on paper your thoughts about equity, diversity, inclusion, or something like that, right? No, it was to reflect on our own progress relative to our internal racism annually in a document that was then going to go into our file. First of all, I I just can't even imagine being a person and thinking that that would be a good idea. And for a variety of reasons, putting any of that down on paper was... But anyway, the, the, the notion that the vote ended up being 70 to 2 or whatever it was, um, you know, that kind of speaks to all the things that are going on now in, in, in the press. We, you hear a lot from journalists who are saying, you cannot believe what's going on in our shop right now, right? Or um, they're, meet, they're meeting out uh, after work in bars. Uh, sometimes people are only willing to talk about what's going on at work if they work with their spouses, right? So this is, again, recalls the kind of the Soviet uh, cliche of the husband and wife who who spoke under the covers at night, you know, about (laughs) what was going on at work. Um, You know, that stuff's going on in this business now. And um, yeah, I mean, that the the, the problem is that people keep thinking that it's not going to come for them, that if they just go along that eventually like they'll get to keep their job and, you know, it's not going to be a problem, but it eventually it does, you know, it's, it sniffs you out. Uh, and people are mistaken if they think they're not going to end up having to collide with it at some point or another. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, eventually it's going to come for you and eventually is like by the end of July. Right. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Um, so here's the thing. You're right. Everybody, every, you, know, you, you can imagine how many people are telling me, my God, we're all evergreen now, right? It's like, okay, yes, you are. Now can we go the next step? And it's like, I just, I want to just emblazon the word extrapolate, right? Mm-hmm. On something that I can hold in front of people because the point is, okay, if this is evergreen, and it is, I mean, um, the parallel is almost too close to believe, right? If this is evergreen, what happens next? I mean, first of all, look at Evergreen, right? Evergreen is a failing college. It has a quarter of the students it's supposed to have. It has no plan going forward, and it has continued down this road without ever acknowledging it made a mistake. Right. That's the that's the Democratic Party, right? <laughs> jo- Joe Biden is George Bridges, and the United States is about to be Evergreen, except that in the United States, there's another force that this is going to collide with, which is the well-armed rural population that has a right to be terrified that this is coming for it, right? Yeah, I, mean, I saw a news article yesterday that not only are gun sales going up, but that 40% of the sales are for, for first-time buyers, um, which I yep. thought was a pretty amazing statistic because we've seen in the past you know, various moral manias that come up in the press convince people to go out and buy guns, but it's usually the people who are already the gun enthusiasts. buying guns. Yeah, exactly. This is, this is something new. Um, I don't know what that means yet. I think, I think you're probably onto something uh, that people are, are gearing up for some kind of conflict that they imagine will happen, which I, I hope it doesn't, but, um, but yeah, absolutely. There's that. And, uh, the, the only thing I would, I would push back on with, with the metaphor of Biden as Bridges is that, you know, 
for all the craziness of all of this, uh, you know, Trump is an extraordinarily ineffective vehicle for uh, harnessing the discontent uh, and anger towards um, towards all of these processes. He did he did fairly well with it, I would say, um, just cynically watching him in 2016. But he was an unknown quantity then, and his total his incompetence to deal with you know, this unique crisis that we're in right now is, um, I mean, obviously I'm not going to make the same mistake of predicting again uh, that it's going to, he's going to lose, but it, you know, it's very possible that Biden's going to win. And even though the Democratic Party is intellectually, I think it's just completely broken. It doesn't stand for anything anymore except for not being something else. Uh, and even that doesn't stand for that all that strongly. Uh, it's, it could still sputter on for a little while. Um, and what I, I guess what I worry about is that it, it will succumb to the same institutional pressures that happen at Evergreen and, and have happened more recently at the New York Times. It's, you know, it doesn't know, because it's not strong in its own identity, it's susceptible to being taken over by zealots. Uh, and I, I don't know how much you would worry about that, but I, I worry about that a little bit. No, I think it's far worse than that. I think, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is becoming a theme, I guess. But uh, the uh, the Democratic Party stands for nothing because it has become an influence peddling racket, as the Republican Party is, and as such, the only thing it does is protect its access to power. And what has happened is it has lost its argument for being awarded that power by voters, um, and what it is now going to do is it is going to rally a constituency by giving it something real. But mm -hmm. what it's giving it is power over other citizens. In right. other words, and this is why I say it is George Bridges, right? Mm -hmm. Joe Biden is the George Bridges play because what it's going to do is it's going to empower this counter-revolution that is now marching in our streets and marching in every single institution it is going to empower them to keep them from going after the real culprit. So, right. you know, the anger in the streets is about something real. Americans have been frozen out of a large fraction of the well-being that they've created. And in an effort to stave off the French Revolution yet one more election cycle, the people with the pitchforks and the torches are going to be awarded rights to extract stuff from other citizens and that is what's, I just don't even see how that will be avoided. It's not that the zealots will take over the Democratic Party. It's that the Democratic Party will foolishly empower them, will cynically empower them in order to win this election and potentially future ones. And that will be the final straw. Yeah, I think you're probably right. Uh, I remember in 2016 watching, um, you know, when Bernie was first becoming a thing. And it was surprising to see how well he was. I guess it wasn't surprising, you know, because the Democrats are, their message is just so unsuccessful when they try to present it, um, you know, unvarnished in front of audiences. It's just amazing the lack of response they get. Uh, so Bernie starts doing well. And one of the first things that starts happening is that the Clinton campaign starts dusting off the language of campus intersectionality to go after the Sanders movement. Uh, which I thought was fascinating because I had watched Hillary do exactly the opposite in 2008 
when Barack Obama was the candidate, you know, she was basically trying to run as George Wallace in places like Pennsylvania. Now they, they figured, because this is how they're wired, that, well, let's just go for whatever cynically will get us through the night. Um, Bernie is vulnerable. Uh, we'll call him a cis white man. We'll, we'll get all of our, uh, our aides to whisper in the ears of journalists at night. Uh, Hillary uh, publicly says things like, yes, if we broke up the banks tomorrow, would that end racism? Which was an extraordinarily effective line because Bernie didn't know how to answer that for some reason. Uh, he was afraid of the connotation of answering that, answering that charge. And he backed off from it and that became successful. And I think that's, that's the seed, the, that was the seed of what you're talking about where the trade for the Democrats became, all right, so to, resist, to stop us from having to deal with uh, offending all of our donors in the health insurance industry, in the military industrial complex, uh, on Wall Street, I mean, this is our power base, right? This is, and, they, and they transparently, if you talk to people in the party, they transparently see their job as uh, finding the middle ground between getting elected and, and making sure that the donors are happy. And their donors are, you know, not people, they're these big institutions. So they saw that the way forward was to start adopting the language of wokeness. Um, I don't think at any level they ever believed it uh, in any meaningful way. Um, but they, and they did it again this year, even, you know, with Bernie um, again, but I think you're right. I think what they're going to end up doing is rather than go forward with Medicare for all or any other kind of serious structural reform or breaking up the banks on wall street or any of the other things that, that people have been asking for, um, they're going to, they are going to give him something. I, th I think they're going to give him this institutional revolution that some people are asking for, which conveniently will exclude some of their biggest donors from impact for a while, you know? And uh, I think that that's, that's a good analysis with that, you, that you have of the situation. It troubles me that, that uh, we don't see that in the press very much. Uh, when, when they're talking about what the Democrats are doing with this language. Why is Nancy Pelosi, um, you know, dressing in kente cloth scarves and, you know, they're participating and they're talking about knocking down all these statues where only a few months ago they were denouncing Sanders on patriotic grounds as being a Russian agent. Like they don't see the contradiction there. It's just, it's, it's an odd thing. Yeah. It's odd. It again reminds me of those people walking out to look at the fish flopping on the <laughs> sea floor. Right, yes, exactly. Well, that yeah. perfectly describes the Democrats in like a million ways. In a million yeah. ways. Right, exactly. Yeah. Um, and, you know, uh, of course, in 2020, that just puts us in such an amazing bind because nothing stands between us and this revolution getting its every wish, which, you know, I guess on the bright side, the fairy tales it's talking about aren't going to function, so it's not going to be long-term successful, but it can wreck everything in the process. And, you know, not only are Americans depending on all of the things it's going to wreck, but the world is depending on us to, um, to keep it together. Because if we don't, I mean, look what we're doing to the international picture. Yeah, that... And also, I think another huge 
issue there is uh, what happens when we don't get a fake Trump the next time? What happens when we get a real fascist uh, in response, which for sure is going to happen uh, yep. if if things continue in, in a certain direction, right? Because if Trump, for all of his faults, and they're, you could list them from now until tomorrow, he, he's everything that a lot of people have said about him. His uh, personality is sufficiently disorganized uh, and, and inward focused that he was never able to commit to any policy of any kind. He was not even, you know, even when he brought in Steve Bannon, which I thought was a dangerous moment because it wedded an actual strategic mind to the horsepower, political horsepower that Trump was capable of bringing. He just couldn't get along with that person for very long. Trump is like, he's so profoundly insecure in his relationships that he can't, he can't have any for any extended period of time. So it prevented him from doing a lot of the dangerous things that people predicted that he would do. Uh, but there's going to come a time when someone is going, to, is going to try to get elected using the same formula that Trump used, but is going to be not a dummy and not a narcissistic, uh, you know, sort of psychological, uh, psychologically disabled person. And, you know, that's going to be a serious problem, right? Because there's, there's all those people who are buying guns for the first time, you know, they're going to be receptive to the message that comes from, you know, the, the face in the crowd, Andy Griffith figure, who is inevitably going to, inevitably going to rise from all this. No, I exactly agree with this analysis, that uh, as troubling as Trump is, the fact that, you know, he's a narcissist or the equivalent um, actually limits the damage, right? Because, you know, his objective function is not... Uh, to turn us into something else. He's, you know, he's not an organic fascist. He's, uh, he's selfish. Right. Um, and so, yeah, this is coming. And it's like, somehow we're having this incredibly foolish argument where people see that they don't want Trump. And of course they are blinded by it. And, you know, Trump derangement syndrome is real, right? And it is the entire argument for the Democratic Party winning at this point it's not a good argument but um but it's like it's like quitting smoking right the argument against quitting smoking cannot be it's very very hard to quit smoking because it's going to get harder right right yeah so right if if trump is the focus it's the only thing you can see then the answer is well now is the time we have to break out of this duopoly nonsense because the next time it's going to be way worse it's going to be the thing you said it was this time that it didn't turn out to be right yeah absolutely yeah. And, and and if i could uh, nerd out on the on the, the coverage of of trump for a minute because this this has bothered me a lot ever since he got elected the the storyline about trump uh should have been the extraordinary black comedy that happened in 2016. Like here was a guy who basically was not trying to win, who was running for a variety of reasons that were preposterous on like a multiple levels, who was actively sabotaging himself uh, multiple times throughout the campaign. Uh, and yet he wins anyway, right? Like in other words, he's, he's trying to lose, but America does not let him lose. Mm -hmm. And 
rather than focus on my god how could that possibly have happened like how what like profound structural flaws in our system uh, what could possibly have disenchanted people so much that they would even override trump's natural self-destructive urges to put him in office um, nobody did that analysis they immediately went for this other thing which was to, per to portray trump as something that he wasn't which was this sort of otherworldly hitlerian uh existential threat who was you know any minute now going to be putting us all in concentration camps or, or surrendering us to russia which created this air of unreality around everything um and i think like like all misleading like uh, sort of journalistic efforts to um to try to put paint trump in a bad light they, they went too far and ultimately did damage to their own cause in doing so you know I, I, like they they discredited themselves by painting trump as something that he isn't like the entire argument for donald trump now is the best argument is that institutional america has lied about him and he's if he if he ends up getting elected again it'll be because of that uh, anyway that that's that's a, it's a it's a private thing that really really bothers me about that that whole narrative is that um you know they got him elected the first time and then they're going to do it again if it happens again oh i completely agree with this to the extent <laughs> that you have trump derangement syndrome you should be looking at the democratic party and saying how could you have done this to us and how could you possibly put us in danger of this again because right. there are actually two arguments for trump now one is that he has faced a conspiracy to eliminate him from office from day one, which is true. And I'm not saying that there was nothing to the impeachment. I think there was, but the point is they would have impeached him whether or not there was, right? right. It was yeah. impeachment first and then let's find grounds. Um, so that's one thing. But the other thing is by delivering us Joe Biden as the alternative, Joe Biden in his enfeebled state, they have created another argument. A rational person could say, well, at the end of the day, I want somebody in the Oval Office who is capable of processing the information necessary to, let's say, avoid a nuclear conflict. I don't right. want it to be Trump because he could get us into a nuclear conflict. On the other hand, Joe Biden two years from now, as compared to Donald Trump two years from now, who is going to be more capable of integrating information? I can't say that I think it's Joe Biden. Maybe I can say that I think that there, he's going to step down, but then the point is, since when is electing a president really a means of getting a vice president into the presidency? Uh, you know, this is party rule. So right. I think that, right. you know, I, I'm certainly not voting for Trump. I'm also not voting for Biden. But <laughs> I can see now the Democrats have created arguments for voting for Trump, and that ought to tell us something is way off. Yeah, yeah I think you're... You're exactly right. Uh, if the pandemic hadn't happened, I would be betting a lot of money on Trump to win. Oh yeah. Uh, the the um, his inability to deal with this well, you know, all of his worst qualities have come out here, and so, you know, that they're going to they're going to make the argument that yeah, well, Joe Joe Biden is basically a corpse, and we all understand that, and that's why we're not going to put him on television at all if we can avoid it but we're really electing the people behind him. Uh, and those people are going to, you know, be relatively sane. 
which is going to be a new thing for this country, uh, you know, at least for going back four years. So they're going to make that argument. But, uh, you know, for a lot of people, for, for a lot of voters, they don't think, you know, that many levels down. They, they look at what the images they see on television and Biden next to Trump, you know, it, it, it doesn't look great you know, to the ordinary voter. So, uh, yeah, you're, you're right. Uh, it's, it's, it's very frustrating that they have, that they've created this condition again. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about, um, what we should do and what we might do. Mm-hmm. One thing I wanted to go back a little bit in our conversation and talk about, if we look at the fact that there are all of these layers where we have a vulnerability and these layers can be triggered, if the institutional layer fails to, um, create the requisite power that the movement wants. It can be the the payment layer, or it can be the ISP net neutrality layer, but there are a lot of places. One thing that we should say is, if you were smart, you'd build now, right? So cryptocurrency, for example, provides a solution to the payment layer, but you want to build it now. The problem with crypto, or at least one of them, is that it's not simple enough for it to simply replace a compromised credit card layer. Mm-hmm. It, needs, it needs to be that simple in order for it to actually constitute a solution. Um, and the other thing is you have to figure out how you're going to navigate the internet without the major platforms, which have organized it for us and given us access in a way that is fundamental to how we actually use it, but it's a Faustian bargain because it gives them control over who has access and right. you know it's in this murky gray area where you know it's like a public utility except uh it isn't right so anyway we should be building those things now rather than waiting to discover that those layers are insecure because they're definitely insecure and it's definitely coming and it's marching faster than we think which we can extrapolate from everything we've seen so far mm-hmm. I mean, we've just gotten yeah. there very quickly yep mm-hmm so anyway, I don't know that there's much more to say, except if we were smart, we'd be building those uh, alternative plans now rather than assuming, you know, or crossing our fingers or whatever it is that we're doing. Yeah, I, I you know, I, I've never been very much in the solutions business. I'm always much more in the describing the, the actual misery that's happening uh, side of things. But the, um, but yeah, clear, clearly uh, people definitely need to start thinking about whatever the alternative structures um might be and uh, you know one thing that gives me i'm not going to use this word because it triggers you clearly is hope uh you know (laughs) is the uh i remember during the more or less ineffectual uh occupy wall street movement but one thing that did come out of that was a lot of thinking about well if we don't want uh an oligopoly of massive transnational banks running the, the the economy what what do we want? Uh, and there, there were some ideas that came out of that. Um, public banking, some of, some of the cryptocurrency stuff came out of some of the problems uh, that took place. Um, you know, there were, there were people who were pushed in that direction, I know, by, by some of the events in 2008. Um, so maybe that will happen here too. Like the, there, there'll be a political crisis that will cause a bunch of people to get together. And, and I, know, I mean, I know you've got a political solution that you've been, that you've been pushing, which I, I think is great. Um, and, but clearly after the spectacle of 2016, 
people are going to be very ready for some kind of alternative political movement in a way that they probably haven't been in this country for uh, for a very, very long time. So it's, it's, it's probably a good time for people to get those ideas ready for, for mass presentation, uh, it seems. Well, I agree. It's, it's a good idea to, to, you know, to sketch those things out for the moment at which they could be introduced. But I'm very concerned that there's, a, there's just a general pattern where you have two things fused together, right? This movement is an organic rebellion against a corrupt system and it is a uh, a coup in one. And, you know, the organic rebellion doesn't really understand that the coup is not about making things better. It's about taking power. And that's what all of these uh, false syllogisms are about that it portrays. But I think the problem is, um, A, this is Occupy 2.0, but it's not the Occupy that started after the financial collapse and had legitimate complaints and had some idea what direction it wanted to go with structural change. It's what it's the, it's picked up from the end of Occupy, which was thoroughly infused by this anarchism um, and this belief that the structure has to be torn down in order to make a new one. And of course that, that is an argument being deployed by people who I don't think know anything about how international relations work how a nuclear reactor functions, that a nuclear reactor requires power 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and you can't screw that up for even a day without it turning into a nuclear volcano. It's right. for people who don't understand what the Haber-Bosch process is and what it has to do with feeding more than half the world's population. So the idea of tear it down is a very naive one, and it is now gaining power at, amazing, at an amazing rate. And so those solutions you're talking about... Um, on this path, I don't see how they actually end up in a position to make positive change. Right. Yeah. Well, there are some general ideas that might that that would help, right? So, I th one of the things I like about your unity idea is that um, it it sort of introduces the idea of politics as not a purely adversarial process. Right, that this is uh, this is something where you would get a bunch of people in a room and they would have to come up with a a thing that they would agree on in a collaborative way, which is what Congress used to be. Right, I mean, you if you talk to people in Congress, I've done a lot of reporting on Congress where they they talked about how in the '60s and '70s um, it was a much different situation. The, the politicians would get up and give a speech on Friday, but then on Saturday, the Republicans and Democrats, their families would get together. Um, you know, they would sometimes play golf, sometimes do whatever it was, and they would actually work out the thing and they would sort of patriotically have in mind how that works. And that all started to break down in the 90s and everything became, you know, just shouting at each other the media has broken down in the same way, right? Like, so now it's just basically two camps of monocultures that are yelling at each other. Uh, I think there's a strong urge and you, and you talk about this in the, the stats that you cite about how people self-identify politically. If you could just attach um, a political idea to 
or, or express it in a way that all those people who identify as independents and don't identify as, you know, far left, far right, could have a place where they could, you know, uh, vote and, and put somebody in power. I think it would be very, very successful. Um, but again, oh, be, I'm, I'm the optimist in this in this, in this <laughs> conversation. So well, here here I like your optimism a lot. Um, yeah, the thing is, we know. I mean, you can intuit if you talk to people, but we now know from careful study that the vast majority of Americans actually agree, and that this is the fringes driving the discussion. And most of us don't sign up for either of the perspectives that we see being broadcast at such high decibel level. So yes, that constituency, it, were you to try to make a political move, the obvious way to win every election is to agree to represent the American public. Right. right. That's a slam dunk as a strategy goes. Now, the reason that our parties never find that strategy is they can't. It's, it's mutually exclusive with their business model. Right, now, they're exactly. Not, they're they're not supposed to have a business many times, yeah. <laughs> of course you have. It's your, it's your uh, stock and trade, or at least one of them. But... Um, but here's the question. What stops, I mean, look, Occupy, in my mind, did one useful thing, really just one. But it was important. And it was the idea that there was something that you could even plausibly describe the conflict as between the 1% and the 99%. How does a democracy get rigged against 99% of its population? Right. right? That tells yeah. you it's not a democracy. It mm -hmm. tells you some other force has taken over. So um, the point is, you can't interfere, you can't honorably interfere in a normal election cycle, because you're told that if you do, if you try to represent the people and get elected on that basis, that you will elect the, the party that is less in line with your values rather than more. So you're going to do more harm than good because of the lesser evil paradox. Mm -hmm. So Unity 20, uh, 2020 addresses that so that we don't have to face the lesser evil paradox and we can reach the public and say, look, we've got a plan for actually having your interests represented at the highest level of government, which frankly I see as the only thing that could conceivably uh, head off the calamity to which we are currently aimed. Um, but that requires this other thing that we talked about earlier to somehow be knocked out of its normal pattern of resonance, which is to say that same pattern of cowardice and uh, of passivity. Basically, I see it as people having been turned in their own minds from being uh, citizens into being consumers. You know, a citizen is an active thing. A consumer is a passive thing. And because people consume everything, including the political landscape, they don't understand that actually the thing that is necessary to escape the trap that has been set for them in which they will vote for one or the other terrible and highly corrupt options is that they have to actually take ownership of the choice to do something different. Mm -hmm. They have to figure out how to talk to their friends, for example. Right. Um, so I don't know. Um, you know, you're a, you're an interesting guy and I want to I want to find out a little bit about how you ended up there. We know a little bit about your background in Russia, which I think gave you a very different perspective on the West. But it is also the case that your focus as a journalist has created 
immensely powerful enemy where it has put you in their sights. Yeah, right? that's true. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. and, and yet here you are. That's a little bit surprising. So you have beaten the odds in a way few journalists have been able to by reporting accurately and courageously on um, phenomena that are deeply embarrassing to the most powerful forces in our system. Mm-hmm. Um, and you have stayed, you've stayed afloat. So right. A, do you know how that happened? <laughs> uh, well, you know, in terms of why you do that, um, you know, my, again, my, my father was a journalist um, and I, I grew up in an atmosphere. My, my childhood was a lot like the movie Anchorman. Uh, I, you know, he was a TV reporter, all the bad facial hair, everything. Um, but reporters, when I was growing up, uh, they came from a different class of people than they do today. They were, um, a lot of them were kind of more working class. Like they were more likely, their parents were more likely to be plumbers or electricians than they were to be doctors or lawyers. Like the, this thing where, you know, the journalist is uh, an Ivy League grad. That's a relatively new thing that I think came out, came about in the 70s and 80s with my generation. But reporters basically just instinctively hated rich people. They hated powerful people. Like if you put up a, a poster of a politician in, in a newsroom, it was defaced instantaneously. Like there were darts on it. You know, the the... Reporters saw it as their job to stick it to the man, right? Like that was the that was the attitude. I think it's very ably embodied by people like Cy Hirsch, if you've ever seen him in public. Like that's just a person who just lives to make people uncomfortable, right? Uh, and by digging and digging and digging. And so that was the ethos that I grew up around. Uh, and I always understood it, the purpose of the job to be to look in all directions and say like where's the biggest most obnoxious thing that's happening right now and um you know what what, how can i have an impact that other reporters maybe aren't paying attention to you know and so you know with something like the the financial crisis in 2008 one of the first things that i learned about that is that the only people who are covering wall street were sympathetic to wall street because <laughs> nobody else understood it right so the there was a an opportunity there to to do this kind of work where we're just basically translating things for ordinary people and that's very re- revelatory but uh the, that that mode of of understanding the job to be that and being willing to take all the crap that comes with it um it used to be i think standard in in, in the the profession and I, I don't really see that so much anymore, although there are a lot of people who, who are coming up who, um, you know, are that way, you know, people like Lee Fong at The Intercept. Glenn Greenwald is different. He's like, he didn't come from the reporting tradition, but he's got that same personality quirk of just wanting to piss people off. Uh, but mostly the, the job is different now, right? Like I think the, have you ever seen the movie Primary Colors? Mm-mm. Um, it was the sort of it was sort of a book that was made into a movie. Uh, it was about the Clinton campaign in 1992. It was written by a journalist named Joe Klein, who initially was anonymous. Uh, he wrote it as a novel, 
but the the fantasy among reporters in the in the 90s about politicians started to be i want to be the person who hangs out with the candidate after the speech and has a beer and is sort of close to power and that's that's kind of the model that's where we're at right now that's kind of the problem is is that basically people in the business want to be behind the rope line with uh, people of influence and um you know, it's going to be an, it's going to be a problem trying to get us back to other adversarial posture uh, of the past. Yep, I agree. Um, and in some sense, I mean that that that's important history, and I think it's uh, it's useful insight, and I'm glad to hear it. But you know, it is the easier part of the puzzle. <laughs> I understand why you would want to do right. what you do. What I don't understand is how you've succeeded at it. Some, some, just as with institutions, we see. There's almost not an institution, and maybe really not an institution, that has shown us how to resist this movement. There's very little indication um, that what you do is possible, which is to confront these very powerful entities and live to tell the tale and not be uh, driven off the map or co-opted or I don't know what. Well, I mean, I've definitely been, you know, bruised a little bit over the years i've gone i've gone through a couple of episodes uh, that haven't been all that pleasant but i think if you you know in terms of um what i've done to try to uh, retain an audience over the years um there's only a couple of ways to really do it you either have to do what cy hirsch does which is get get the story that no one else can get uh, and that that's just you know, a way of amassing power in this business, right? Like you, you have something and no one else has, people are going to come to you no matter what. And, and incidentally, he's basically been driven out of the business. If you notice, he only publishes in like the London Review of Books now. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, this is the person who from Milai to to Abu Ghraib has always gotten the biggest story, right? So there's there's, even for the best of us, it's a very difficult road. Uh, but the other way to do it, I think, is the way that I um, and uh, I take probably the easier road, which is just, you know, I focus a lot on trying to make the work entertaining, uh, clear, um, uh, and have some kind of popular appeal to it, which is very difficult to um, suppress, right? So if you, if people just, if you've got a little bit of humor, um, you know, it's difficult to get to get people to stop reading something that they just enjoy reading, you know? And so uh, that mixed with being super careful about the investigative stuff, like you don't want to, you know, in this business, one bad mistake that labels you as dishonest um, is usually fatal, uh, or it used to be anyway. So that's been my that's been my formula is like be be really really careful and then try to try to think in terms of a um, how you're really really think in terms of rhetorically how to reach a, a wide audience which is a lot harder than people think it is it's it's a very difficult thing to do um, but you know that's the job right I mean so um, it's I've been lucky that that also that there there are um, processes like you know this subscription site that I have available now that 
make it possible to be a little bit braver than maybe it would be if I was only working in an institution. But um, but there is a way forward to do it. It's just it's not terribly easy. That's all. All right. So there are a couple lessons in there that I resonate with strongly. One is you've built this site outside of your day job, as it were, at Rolling Stone. And I believe this is actually a fundamental mechanism for surviving in this era. Because if you're only, if everything, if your mortgage, your health care, your retirement, your income, if all of that stuff comes through your employer and something catches the attention of your employer and decides to go after you, then you have very few options. Whereas if you have built something on the outside ahead of time, then the point is, well, you may not want to lose your day job, but at least you're not starting from scratch at the point that you do. Mm-hmm. So this was true for Heather and me when we got driven out of Evergreen, which is that we were already, um, we were not well known, but we were already reaching out and trying to figure out how to bring evolutionary biology to a wider audience. And it made a huge difference because we were not at square one. Right. Um, the other thing you mentioned, which I think may be in some sense the most important factor in all of this is I think you have pointed to a conspicuous lack of humor (laughs) of the movement. It's Uh, amazing, actually. It's amazing. And it is, I I think it is the thing that frightens me most. Yeah. You know, I have this, this, when students used to ask me, they asked me for advice about all sorts of things because at Evergreen, we knew our students really, really well. So many of them were friends at one level or another. And I used to tell them, uh, you should not consider marrying anyone who does not have a sense of humor about themselves. <laughs> They're just not marriage material, um, right? Because you're going to need the sense of humor. Everybody's got to have a sense of humor about themselves just to navigate something as complex as marriage. For sure. So anyway, that's an aside about marriage. But the point is, the lack of a sense of humor on the part of this movement tells you something about a kind of um, rigidity of thinking and a, um, I don't know what it is, but it's it's a very cold, frightening uh, absence. Yeah. And once you spot it, you can't miss it. Uh, you're absolutely right. I, I just wrote about this uh, last week, actually, that, you know, the, the 60s liberation movements, um, they had this enormous power uh to spread because they were incredibly attractive to people, even, even who were politically resistant to them. The music was great. The comedy was amazing. Like even people who were abject racist, they, they listened to Richard Pryor's comedy and they, they couldn't help themselves. They laughed. Right. And, and I think it was because that movement was very much about celebrating the common humanity of people. They were trying to dig down and, and get to deeper truths about all of us. And even if it was kind of uh, disturbing and unpleasant, like they were going to put it out there and, um, and that was really liberating for everybody. And and it was a very attractive message. You know, I think that's what I was trying to do is contrast that with this, which has no art, no, no music, no, and certainly no comedy, right? There's the, 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 there's no such, thing as comedy in, in this conception it's actually it's almost definitionally impossible because comedy by its nature is daring and it's iconoclastic in all directions right the the, the urge to be funny 
always ends up dressing down everybody, not just a specific target. Uh, you know, it's not just the emperor who has no clothes, it's everybody, right? So uh, when you're trying to have a very didactic politics, comedy just doesn't go well with it, you know? And, um, and, I, and that's a conspicuous weakness of this movement. I, I think a lot about, there was a book uh, I read a long time ago, um, it was a biography of Lenin called The Bolsheviks that was written by this historian, Adam Ulam, who's a very funny writer uh, himself, but he was obsessed with Lenin and it shines through in the book that the thing, it, it's almost an admiration. Like he was, he was amazed by the scale of Lenin's humorlessness. Uh, <laughs> and and he, he, it was almost like a, a 700 page ode to a person who was incapable of laughing, right? Uh, and that feels a little bit like what we're dealing with with a lot of this new ideology like you, you you just can't believe that in any in every direction you look there's there's no possibility of like any kind of relief or looseness or anything it just gets it gets tighter and tighter so uh it's fascinating you know and also it's weird because young people by their nature want to joke and and they don't you know uh and i i don't i don't know where it leads honestly it's it's strange well, so I have a, an evolutionary take on this, which is okay. that um, humor is actually a mechanism whereby we discover what hangs out on the fringes of our consciousness. You know, if somebody makes a joke and it reveals, if people laugh and it's organic laughter rather than that stupid applause that you see people do these days when somebody makes a joke, if they earnestly laugh, you can actually tell that they know the truth of that statement, right? Mm -hmm. And it may, be, it may not be a straightforward truth, but there's some truth in it, and they know it, and you know it, and now you both know that each other knows it, right? So um, evolutionarily, humor is like a mechanism for exploring things that are at the fringes of consciousness, often because they're a bit uncomfortable, right? Mm -hmm. So it's like signing on to an acknowledgement that, yeah, we all know that thing is true, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so the flip side of this is if you're movement is composed at least at the level of what it claims of pure nonsense a humor is almost inconceivable because humor would reveal that you know how feeble these arguments are or you don't and that makes you even more of a fool right right yep. so the point is we're not going to even allow joking because if we allowed joking that'd be it movement right. would be over in an hour you know yeah um so that's the frightening thing is that the humorlessness kind of goes along with a power grab that cannot afford to be candid, cannot afford for anybody to be candid about what they see and know about how it functions and what it's after. Um, yeah, and I, 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 you're absolutely right. But, but I, that's, I think it's a huge weakness, though, of, of this thing, because people just, they just can't go for long without laughing at something, you know? Um, and this, this, uh, this movement has gotten progressively more and more uh, constrained and paranoid and uh, unable to uh, have any kind of sense of humor about itself. Uh, you know, the, even, even like commercial humor, like the Saturday Night Live version of humor, um, it, it was bad enough when basically all the jokes that you saw on television were Putin coming down the chimney or some other thing where there's like a 
overt leaden political message attached to it, but you don't even really get that anymore. Like there's, there's just not even an attempt. And, um, you know, pe people want something, eventually somebody is going to be brave and funny enough to come up and just rip through it the way Richard Pryor did, you know, like there's, there's going to be just a genius, uh, you know, a Lenny Bruce type who's going to take advantage of the, this constricted atmosphere and, uh, and, it's, I think that's going to be devastating to it. You know, once the right comedian mixes with this material, which is amazing material, uh, it's, it's going to be devastating. Yeah. I think, I think we can say two things for sure. One you just said, which is that somebody is going to figure out how to do this and it's going to be devastating. And the other thing we can say is that it's going to be Dave Chappelle. Which is great. <laughs> right. Yes, that's true. That's true. Yeah. yeah. You can tell, I mean, he, he's, he's the perfect person to do it. Uh, and he's uncancelable. Um, so yeah, uh, I think we await, uh, with interest to see how, how he, but you know, he, he's going to have to commit to it when he does it too. You know what I mean? It's going to have to be yeah. an ongoing like slugfest. So uh, yeah. Personally, I'm hoping that his August calendar is clear for that job because I don't know how much longer we can hold out. <laughs> um, Absolutely. Yep. All right. So, uh, before we close this out, is there anything you think we should cover I mean, I'd love to have you back anytime you want to come, but uh, anything you no, think we should cover today? No, I think we went, we went through most of it. I mean, uh, honestly, I'm, uh, you know, I, I was going to ask you a few things on it because uh, I'm starting to sort of look Please at a lot, a lot of the origins of, of, of this stuff. And, um, you know, one thing I'm really interested in um, is like the proliferation of administrative staff and what when that started, like, why do you think that that happened? Like, so I've had some people suggest to me that universities suddenly became a wash in money because of guaranteed student loans or whatever it was. Like, where did all these extra people come from? And uh, what's, what's worth looking at if I was, you know, going to try to look at the origins of that? Yeah, I think, George Bridges actually taught me the answer to this, and <laughs> I'm trying to figure out whether, you know, he and I had a very adversarial relationship, but it involved a certain number of private conversations in which there was more candor than you might imagine. Hmm. And, you know, he was the worst offender in this regard. He brought in, he massively increased the size of the administration of the college, and he boosted some people to positions of power who weren't qualified for it, didn't bring anything to the table that would make you want them in those positions. And it became clear that in some sense, he was building a structure that was self-protective. A, you know, you can imagine you take somebody who, you know, I don't know, maybe they're earning, you know, $50,000 a year, and suddenly you get them a job where they're earning $150,000 a year right? That's going to be a loyal person. When your malfeasance come to the surface, that's somebody who's going to stand by you, right? Mm -hmm. um, so I think the general rubric was, in George's case, he was solving a George problem. And the George problem was he was going to do some stuff that was going to put him in jeopardy. He needed people who could be sacrificed, and a large number of them, so that as people came for him, you know, heads could roll and they wouldn't be his. And he needed to have more votes than he had. And the way you right. get more votes is you get people who, you know, 
uh, will Clarence Thomas to your Antonin Scalia, right? Mm-hmm. So um, I don't know how general it is, but I guess I would say game theoretically, I think the basic answer is much of what goes wrong goes wrong because individuals are serving a narrow individual purpose and we look at the collective consequence of this and imagine that an institutional purpose is being solved. Right, right. right. That's interesting. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that's that's my best guess. The other thing is, actually, this is something, um, uh, at some point I had dinner, Heather and I did, with Jordan Peterson, and he said that he had seen this phenomenon, which I'm sure you're going to be as familiar with as anybody, which is that you you have an institution and it's constructed to solve a problem, but over time it evolves to continue to exist. That becomes its purpose. Mm-hmm. And so lots of things that are designed to accomplish some goal subtly shift to actually not solving the problem because that would be reason to go extinct. Right. And rather than do that, they come up with self-justifying explanations for the need to have them go on forever. And, you know, you can even hear this in this movement about how, uh, you know, this contradiction. White supremacy is a terrible, critical problem in the United States that requires us to address it immediately and in profound ways. It's also an incurable problem, so there's really no point in addressing it. We will be doing this forever. Right. right? It's, a, it's a, a lifetime commitment. Yeah. It's a permanent job. It's mm-hmm. it's the goal we will never reach. Right. So anyway, I think this um, this this tendency for things that have gained power, gained access to resources to come up with reasons that they need to continue doing what they're doing has more to, to say about why these administrations become bloated. Now, why it suddenly took off, clearly there was some sort of a tipping point or phase transition that gave whatever it is that wants to create more administration the power to do so. Hmm. Um, and it's a, it's a little harder to spot what that might be. Um, but somewhere in that neighborhood, the game theory is happening at the individual level and the analysis is happening at the collective level. And so they, they, they don't meet. Right, right. Another point she'll meet. Right. Interesting. All right. Well, cool. Uh, Brett, thank you so much uh, for having me on. I really appreciate it. Well, I really appreciate you coming on. I do want to ask you just straight out. Sure. Um, Will you join us, Unity 2020? Yeah. Will you? I, uh, uh, oh, you indicated uh, that you liked the plan, but frankly, the problem is many people don't know what to make of it. And for Matt Taibbi to say that he sees what it is, understands its importance, and uh, supports it, would I think go a long way to convincing people that this is um, this is not performance art. This is actually an attempt to um, to write our course and preserve the republic and uh you know the most serious of people take it seriously no i i, I love the idea i signed the the petition on the, on the way this morning or uh, so uh yeah, great yeah yeah well thank you so much we really appreciate that and um you know i'm already looking forward to our next conversation absolutely so, let me know anytime and we should um, come on our show sometime too i would love to yeah. um uh before we sign off completely People can find you on Twitter at your uh, yeah I'm at M Taibi uh, and that's T A I B B I. Uh, my site is taibi.substack.com and then I'm at rollingstone.com as well. All right. Now yeah. I would personally add that 
I have signed up for your site and I've been blown away by the quality of your writing and the clarity of your thinking. And, uh, you know, there are a limited number of dollars that you can throw at signing up for stuff, but this is highly worth it. I would put it at the top of my list. Outstanding. Well, I, I, I appreciate that. Uh, normally I wouldn't be, uh, mentioning that, but it, uh, in, in this climate, uh, I actually do need the, the subscriber support. So that, thanks very much. Well, let, let's, let's not be embarrassed about that. This yeah. is something I've uh, learned a bit from my brother, which is, look, if you want this kind of stuff to happen in an environment where institutions are toppling at the rate they are, then you got to support it. And the fact is, you know, you have three kids, am I right? Yeah, that's right, yes. So you've got a family, you have to support them, they have to come first, and yet you're courageously uh, exploring this stuff as you have been for decades. So, um, you know, we can all feel good about supporting you, and I certainly do, and I know that, that uh, my viewers will as well. Outstanding. Thanks so much, Brett. I appreciate it. And uh, we'll right. talk again soon. Yeah, thanks, Matt. All right. Be well.